welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Hello, my name is Sean Shields, and today I'll be your host for this SBCA podcast, looking back at how one component manufacturer forged a successful business in the early pioneering days of this industry in one of the toughest markets in America, Chicago, Illinois. My guest today is Scott Arquilla, former co-owner and vice president and COO of Best Homes Incorporated. Scott, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Sean. Uh, I'd just like to say the idea for the podcast started with an email I sent to you uh, last fall after reading the BCMC show edition of SBC Magazine. Uh, Yes, even after having been out of the industry since 2008, I do read the articles. I appreciate that, Scott. You know, and I want to take this opportunity to point out that, you know, you were serving as president of SBCA when I joined uh, the association on staff. And I, you know, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for all you did personally to make me feel welcome and feel appreciated early on. It, it made a huge impact on me, and frankly, is part of the reason why I'm still here 17 years later. So thanks for that. Uh, Sean, you're very kind, and uh, again, I hope I was not the only reason why you're still there. <laughs> uh, at, at the time, we were just beginning our annual spring trips to Washington for the legislative conferences. It made most of us pretty nervous as we had never really done anything like this before. I still remember sitting in the Speaker of the Houses with his chief aide and uh, the aide allowing us to stand on the Speaker's balcony overlooking the mall the first year. Uh, The next year, Dan Holland arranged a group of us to meet with Senator Trent Lott, the majority leader, and in fact, a timber property owner. It was another great meeting. Yeah, yeah, those were the days, right? <laughs> exactly. Scott, so you know, you mentioned that first time going to D.C. Um, what led this industry to want to go to D.C. in the first place? What was going on? In those early years, I recall the industry had gone through lumber spikes because of the spotted owl, hurricanes, and the U.S. Forest Service harvesting ban. Uh, the main issue we were trying to address in Washington was the uh, U.S. lumber industry trying to put a tariff on Canadian lumber. And while that ultimately led to the first software lumber agreement and the countervailing duty assessments, we all came to Washington to complain about the unintended consequences of Canadian manufacturers shipping trusses over the border without any tariff. Our border state component manufacturers were being very hard hit by lower Canadian prices of trusses. And ultimately, that that visit to Washington, D.C. was successful. I mean, you started a conversation uh, that ultimately, if I remember correctly, led to the repeal of the Byrd Amendment. Uh, Senator Byrd from West Virginia had sponsored an amendment that was uh, sort of incorporated into trade law uh, a few years earlier. Yes, it was a very difficult issue for little trust manufacturers to sort of totally get our arms around. Uh, I think Kirk's favorite line, again, was this unintended consequences. And every time a trade deal is struck, there are people down the line, very much like President Trump's tariffs on goods from China or wherever. Uh, Every time there's a, a tariff put in place, it affects a lot of little people way down the line, not just the actual manufacturer uh, or supplier. Right. So, I mean, 
certainly we weren't the only ones railing against the Byrd Amendment at the time, but I, I, I do, re I wasn't there, but I recall the stories of talking with Lott and whatnot that it opened his eyes and then leadership's eyes and then Congress's eyes to, oh, maybe we need to do something about this. And ultimately they did repeal the Byrd Amendment. And I think there was this feeling that before that meeting happened, this was not on their radar. And our industry actually put it on their radar and ultimately led to it successfully going away, which got rid of that uh, in, you know, perverse incentive for uh, the lumber industry in this case, and led to then the industry going back to the negotiating table and, and ultimately resolving and reaching, resolving the conflict and reaching sort of that 10 year um, lumber agreement between the US and Canada, which expired again um, just a few years ago. Recently, and right. now we're stuck in that same cycle again where US interests are, you know, basically succeeded in putting these tariffs on Canadian companies. And I think they, they just revised those downward here in the last couple of weeks. So it's still ongoing. It was certainly few of us were fully aware of everything relating to this. I know Kirk was very involved. I know Ken Pagel was very involved. You know, the WTCA staff did a wonderful job of setting us up how we got appointments with some of these real um, trade negotiators while we were uh, in Washington it was amazing to me, truly amazing to me. Well, and it was, had everything to do with personal relationships that component manufacturers had with those lawmakers. Correct. Um, okay, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your family. Uh, quite a few generations uh, of your family have been involved in the home building industry. Can you begin with your grandfather and share a little bit about how the family business started? Sure. Um, my 17-year-old grandfather came over from Italy in 1910 as an indentured servant. I say indentured servant because he didn't have the necessary steamship fare to make the voyage. Uh, he was from a small mountain town in the center of Italy, one of 12 children whose father was a farmer. Upon arrival at Ellis Island, he took the train to Chicago and had to serve as a laborer at a stone quarry in Red Granite, Wisconsin. After his debt was paid, based on the amount of work he did, he moved back to Chicago to join an older brother. They were both laborers in the beginning, uh, specifically hod carriers. Um, and a hod carrier is a Y-shaped device which you would use to manually carry brick up the stairs of a building under construction for the masons to use. Um, I know he was involved in a couple of downtown buildings, including the original Chicago Title and Trust building. Later, they both saved enough money, had a couple of other brothers join them to purchase some property in Stickney, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, to start manufacturing concrete block. That led eventually to room additions and later home building in the southern areas of Chicago. Believe it or not, business was so good that my grandfather retired in the mid-20s to California only to lose all of his investments in second mortgages during the Depression. He took great pride, uh, I can still remember him talking about, that he never foreclosed on anyone in all those years. Uh, but the family with two young sons had to return to Chicago a few years later to start up the business again in the late 30s. My grandfather had enough capital to purchase a movie theater because there was so little home building a result of the Depression and into the 40s with the resulting material shortages due to the war effort. 
Mm. Wow. Okay. So definitely some ups and downs there, but he obviously had the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, kept at it. And then, so after World War II, your father and your uncle got involved in the family business. So, you know, thinking about like how your grandfather did business, um, you weren't necessarily there, but recalling stories, that kind of thing, like how did the second generation transform the company that your grandfather started? Well, I think, uh, you know, my father and uncle, when they came back uh, from World War II, uh, you know, the business was just starting to take off again, um, you know, but there were a lot of material and labor shortages and they decided the best way to solve that problem was to start vertically integrating. Uh, vertical integration means they started a group of family controlled businesses such as a ready mix plant, a lumber operation, underground sewer and water contractor, an asphalt plant and road paving business, in addition to Best Homes Inc. in 1957, our quote, prefab component plant. Each of these companies allowed our home building company, which was named Burnside Construction Company, to get the best service as well as better material quality. So even back then, uh, facing sort of a, a labor and material shortage, as you said, the solution was, well, let's let's try to control everything. And that way, from a scheduling, transportation logistics, um, labor, all those things, it made sense to your family of like, Let's just have all those companies and let's control it all. Not that it was an easy task, but it solved a great deal of problems for them. Mm -hmm. So as you said, in 1957, uh, your family started Best Homes, sort of the component side of uh, the integration. And you have this trust plant. Now, 57, that was sort of the fledgling years of the trust industry. Uh, can you share any stories that you remember about what it was like in those first few years, uh, you know, starting out and figuring out these trusses and how to sell them I, and that kind of thing? We originally started building trusses uh, in an old dairy barn that was on a former farm uh, of property that Burnside had purchased uh, from a boys school to uh, develop into a huge subdivision. Yeah, this was a school for wayward boys, and they decided that by the late 50s, teaching farming to young lads was probably not the best thing to do in the Chicago suburbs. Huh. So we, for five years, the company built trusses there. But you have to remember, back in the olden days, you know, they were 20, 25, maybe a 30-foot span of common trusses. So it was pretty simple um, construction years and years and years ago. But I don't have that many memories of that location. Uh, I just wasn't exposed to it. And I was pretty young then. But in 1962, you know, we were going to have to destroy this, these farmhouses and these barns. We built a plant uh, three miles away. And I do remember that opening very well because the first, uh, one of the first Sanford Rollermaster truss machines uh, and gantry was installed. And I can only remember the, all of the employees just being in shock of this latest in advanced technology to manufacture trusses. Uh, 
I still remember working there in the summers and seeing the, the Sanford truck show up from Pompano Beach, Florida. Um, I was 11 in 1962, and after the plant opened, uh, it was about 25,000 square feet. And every Saturday, Scott got to go over and uh, sweep the floor to get rid of all the sawdust. Uh, five years later, when we doubled the size of the plant to 45,000 square feet, I was just about ready to say I quit. Too much to do on one Saturday. Um, fortunately, our, the son of our plant manager joined me uh, in the task. Um, years later, when I was in high school, I worked uh, most every summer, you know, a lumber stacker on the backside of an old Idaco component saw, um, which even though we replaced that saw a few years later, um, back when we had our fire uh, in 2003, that old Idaco saw was called back to business when we built a temporary plant outside for that long winter. It's kind of staggering when you when you look at the the industry. And we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later. But yeah. you, when you look at the equipment and the automation in the industry now, and sort of the longevity of the machines, you know, people are usually thinking this machine's good for five to ten years at the most. Um, and then you bring that up, and it's like, oh, that machine that was good for uh, forty forty some years. Yeah, well, you know, it only had four heads versus six heads today, but. Yeah. I, you know, it still worked. <laughs> and, and again, back then, when that Idaho saw was developed, we they weren't building scissor trusses. So they didn't need that extra cut. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So these are some interesting stories. So you, you spent definitely plenty of time in the truss plant uh, growing up and as a teenager working there. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you told me that your grandfather actually encouraged you not to get into the family business. What, what do you think motivated him to say that? Uh, sort of a long story, but um, sure. in one of those high school years, um, my two older cousins and I were sort of hired to do some miscellaneous projects uh, at one of my family's shopping centers that we owned, um, a little strip mall. And one of the tasks was to repaint uh, the light poles. And to do that, you needed um, to use a hoist, a, you know, lifting a low machine that we put a, um, uh, some wood down on so we could stand on it. And we had to go up halfway up this 40-foot light pole and unhinge it and pull it down in order to repaint the whole thing without being up in the air 40 feet. Um, using the low was not my forte, and my cousins got pretty ticked off at me. And uh, being young like I was, um, I was pretty impatient and I didn't appre their, appreciate their criticism at all. So I just decided to walk off the job and walk the three miles home. Um, huh. My grandfather lived across the street and when he got home from work that day, um, I went across the street and apologized to him like I had apologized to my father and uh, even though I went back to work with my cousins, um, it was after that that he that he advised me maybe it might be best that you um, you know think about doing something else with your life. And I think a lot of my old trust friends uh, remember I was a finance major and originally a commercial banker before I started at, at working for Best Homes. So what brought you back? 
Well, in 1989, my my father, my grandfather had passed away, um, and my father and uncle, uh, due to some managerial differences, uh, split up uh, all of these many companies we had, and uh, one of the companies we had was Best Homes. And um, I had two younger brothers uh, that were working for the companies ever since college, but I convinced my father that maybe it might be best to have someone with some outside experience like I got working in the banking business to help manage the companies. And while it was not the easiest uh, changing careers at the age of 38, uh, I took advantage of the opportunity and uh, eventually recognized my strengths. There were a heck of a lot of frustrations, um, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's good. I mean, you, you definitely stuck with it the rest of your career. Uh, you know, you speak of challenges, and I think that's one thing that people think of, particularly when they think of the Chicago market, you know, being a strong uh, union labor market and, you know, the, the other challenges that sort of go along with the building codes and everything else that is Chicago. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, from your personal experience, what were some of the challenges just of your market in that region? You know, what you had to do to operate and be successful? You know, Chicago uh, was and is a still uh, still a really tough market because of um, two primary issues. First, you know, our five competitors were all union. Second, you know, thanks to Don Hershey and Imperial Components, and I still miss him. He was a great competitor. Uh, you know, the trusses and wall panels were delivered to the top plate via our own truck-mounted hydro cranes. And the primary issue with that is that despite repeated attempts to, to price the crane properly, it was extremely difficult because every job was different. And then you combine that with wide lows traveling on state routes versus the faster Illinois tollway system always made travel uh, next to impossible. On top of that, each suburb was home rule, and they had their own rules and fees for wide loads themselves. So you're paying state fees, you're paying local fees. Um, you know, I still remember the one time, and it was probably a thousand times, the customer would call and say, you know, I know I had a first run this morning, but uh, one of my guys was missing yesterday. Can we maybe get the load out about uh, 1045, 11 a.m.? I mean, it was absolutely impossible to determine when that guy was going to be there. And um, adding more icing to the cake was, uh, given the market being so large, we had any number of non-union manufacturers, you know, shipping in the trusses uh, into Chicago also. Right. So competition was fierce. Logistics were a challenge. Who did you primarily sell to? Uh, continued to sell to my uncle's uh, company, who he kept the home building company. But we had to pretty much, and even over the years at Best Homes and the other companies, we were selling to, you know, we were selling and supplying um, competitors of our own company. And while people didn't necessarily like it at first, um, they, the one thing we tried to sell was basically, um, just customer service and, you know, be as honest as you can every day of the week with every customer. And if you, you know, summer is your, your bust your butt time and you're all too busy, but if you keep them informed, they pretty much would stay with you. And, you know, 
it was just our reputation for communication that uh, went a long way. I'm not saying we were the only ones that did that because every competitor was bogged down and there's only so much capacity everybody had. And I think we were successful uh, primarily in step markets. So we were selling, uh, most of the time, we were selling to the builder. Um, and uh, a little bit of the time, we were selling to a carpenter who would then sell to the builder. Um, but we, you know, like most everybody else, we had our favorite carpenter contractors that would insist on using our products versus somebody else's. And, uh, we were able to, you know, keep in business. I mean, I think uh, it wasn't easy. It was a lot of butt kissing, but uh, we accomplished our mission. <laughs> Can I ask, like, I don't know if you remember this, but sort of at the height, uh, give us a sense for what sort of volume did you do out of your facility? Um, our best year was the year after uh, our fire, which would have been 2005 and we did $10 million. So we were not a monster operation at all. No, but that's still a really good size. Let's go back a little bit. And so remind me again, what year did you start back at your family company after being in finance? That was 1989. 89. So eight years later, 97, I imagine you've gotten your your place in the industry established kind of thing. You end up joining the SPCA uh, board of directors. Uh, which was called the Wood Trust Council of America, WTC at the time. Or as um, my wife calls it, the Woodchucks. The Woodchucks. <laughs> That's a good one. So uh, what was going on with your company at the time that prompted you to sort of join the trade association? Why did I you think my father uh, was uh, my father was a past president of the National Association of Home Builders. Uh, he was president in 1977. And he encouraged me to maybe try some different things, go learn from, um, you know, the industry experts. And uh, I agreed that it was probably a pretty smart thing to do. I should have done it years earlier. Uh, after all, he had before he passed away a couple of years ago. I think he went to uh, national NAHB meetings, uh, especially the convention for over 50 year, 50 consecutive years. Um, and, oh yes. And I mean, even until he was 88, he, he would go every year. Mm. Um, but my goal was to be with the smart guys. And, um, that led to me being on the board, being the president in 2003. And, you know, I can only say I learned far more from others than what I imparted to them. Plus, I created some really special uh, friendships, too. Well, so let's talk about the friendships and let's talk about sort of what you did when you were or what you were a part of uh, when you were uh, with WTCA and SPCA. One of the things that you pointed out was, um, you know, the Building Component Safety Information Booklet, what we call it, BCSI, uh, was one of the things that you were most proud of uh, during your involvement. Can you talk a little bit about what happened during that time and what is it that you were so proud of? at the conclusion of that and anything else that kind of comes to mind that you uh, were involved in during that time? Yes. Um, you know, the industry was struggling as trusses were getting longer and more complex than, like I said, those old 20 to 35 foot commons. 
Um, and we had this relationship with TPI that was probably a little more fist versus fist um, than perhaps what is we're experiencing today. Um, TPI created all of the documents that we had to build trusses by, and there was this one document called HIB 91, you know, commentary and recommendations for handling, installing, and bracing of metal plate connected wood trusses. We all remember them as the green sheets, and they all went out with every load. But anybody would tell you, uh, including me, that it was almost unreadable to anybody other than an engineer. And there's rarely an engineer uh, when someone's setting trusses at a, of a house. Um, I was fortunate to be the management committee chair at that time. And uh, I always valued much of what Kent Pagel told us about product liability. Uh, plus, we were at the age of builders suing all suppliers when an accident occurred, you know, due to giving them uh, certificates of insurance making them uh, additionally insured on our GL policies. You know, if the trusses came down in an accident, they always failed, quote unquote. But Kirk knew that any number of manufacturers in different markets were using different bracing methods you know, in those markets very successfully. Um, it was with that knowledge and understanding that the board decided with TPI's board to create the BCSI. It took a year's worth of work and effort and uh, any number of component manufacturers working with TPI engineers and uh, the WTCA engineers and TPI management to resolve it. Um, but in the end, it led to a, a wonderful document that was easy to understand and uh, in my eyes, more importantly, still used today. Right. I mean, it was sort of the precursor to the job site package, right? You're exactly right. Nobody sends out the little booklet, but there's still one on my shelf here that I keep for memory's sake. And um, uh, whenever I'm around in my area of South Carolina, uh, seeing a house under construction, you know, the first thing I look at is, are they doing any bracing? So let's shift a little bit. When you were president of SVCA, and we already sort of mentioned this, your trust plant burnt to the ground. Now you rebuilt, uh, but not long after your new plant was up and running, the housing market took a steep nosedive and uh, you ultimately ended up shuttering that operation. I'm curious with, you know, using hindsight, would you be willing to talk about, like, if anything, what do you wish you had done differently? Provide a little bit more detail, but talk a little bit about what you wish you might've done differently, either in preparing for that disaster ahead of time or how you ended up recovering from it. Um. It was something that we didn't expect, obviously, and what in fact happened is uh, the building next door to ours, which was only about five feet away, also similar um, concrete block walls, wood roof construction, uh, it had some propane tanks blow up and uh, caused an explosion, caught our roof on fire, and within 45 minutes, our 45,000 square foot plant was gone. And um, we were fortunate that we, you know, one of our other companies was right next door. You know, we had a, a spare trailer, office trailer that we could move into. Um, but my advice to every component manufacturer would be to reread the numerous 
articles that Kent Pagel has written um, over the years regarding, you know, proper insurance. Make sure your building's properly covered and you want replacement costs versus actual cash value. Same with equipment coverage, you know, and remembering all the time what, what these new prices are on this equipment to make sure you're adequately covered. Um, ditto for inventory, raw material, finished goods, uh, but most importantly, business interruption insurance. Um, we always tended to pinch pennies at times, and I would say that was our biggest error. Um, I suggest each each manufacturer find the right commercial insurance broker and work closely uh, to make sure all of your risks are adequately covered. It really doesn't cost that much more money annually. But it would have saved you a lot. We eventually had to sue our next door neighbor for some uninsured uh, losses that we had. We were successful in that, but you know nobody wants to wait uh, 18 months, you know, after a horrible event to get paid what you're really owed. Right. It's no fun suing your neighbor either. And it's no fun. And, and guess what? Um, uh, it was the ready mix plant that was owned by, uh, formerly owned by uh, my father's cousin. Ah, uh, yeah. That's even more tough. <laughs> Let's dwell there for just a second. So you you rebuilt a new, I mean, at the time, I'm, I'm guessing sort of a state-of-the-art facility. This was during the boom years, and then the bottom fell out. What was it like during that time? I mean, not to, to ask a duh question, but what was your mindset going into it? Because you have no idea that was going to be as prolonged as it was going to be or as deep as it was going to be. What was the mindset there? The mindset was, uh, you know, cash was king. How long can I last? And unfortunately, in the Chicago market, the lumber companies were extraordinarily generous with the builders in that they were giving 90-day terms. And we felt with 30-day terms, we felt like we were begging for money. And uh, there became less and less and less work. And the builders were falling and failing. And I had an employee, a trust designer, who made a comment to me one day and said, well, you know, we're doing a lot of these uh, garage roof trust jobs, uh, you know, for about $1,000 each. And I said, great, we only need to do 500 a month to break even. Um, yeah, it sort of puts it in a nutshell. We needed to do half a million dollars a month uh, just to pay the bills. And uh, to keep the staff what we had. Obviously, in the shop, it was far fewer employees as we got slower and slower. But uh, we pulled the plug in November of 2008, sadly, very sadly. And uh, within six or nine months, uh, my other four competitors in Chicago were gone too. No sense being in business. There was none. And uh, I know a couple of other manufacturers nationwide used to make, you know, picnic tables. Uh, I don't think you could make that many picnic tables uh, to break even either. It was it was very tough. And the building sat vacant. We had a, a sale to sell all the equipment. A lot of friends purchased equipment, trucks, etc. But uh, Chicago was a huge disaster. And I suspect you know, the primary cost was uh, basically the mortgage lenders were giving people mortgages uh, if they were breathing instead of looking at credit. 
I hope it doesn't happen again. Yes. So finally, Scott, as you look at the industry today, uh, can you share one thing that you're surprised still hasn't changed after all these years? And I, I guess on the flip side, is there one thing that you would point to that you're amazed has changed the way it has? Actually, Sean, I think there are two things that really haven't changed. Um, first, there's the raw material supply uh, and demand and the ups and downs of prices. I look every once in a while in the paper at lumber prices or I read something about lumber prices. You know, every time a storm hits or a hurricane shows up, uh, it upsets the apple cart and every component manufacturer is subject to those uh, raw material prices and fluctuations that screw up every contract that they have going forward. Um, but second, uh, and probably most important, you know, it's the people in the industry are still have a great passion uh, to see it succeed. And while uh, my family wasn't necessarily successful in being a survivor, I know there's uh, any number of plants that were successful in transforming themselves uh, into survival uh, starting in 2008 to 2012. Uh, I see it in the board uh, pictures uh, with, uh, I see a lot of old faces, I see a lot of new faces uh, taking on, you know, the critical issues that uh, obviously sometimes repeat themselves. And uh, while I haven't attended a BCMC since 2008, uh, I was quite amazed when I saw last year's uh, BCMC issue of uh, SBC Magazine. It was just wonderful seeing and reading about all the new suppliers that weren't there 11 years ago. Uh, and that's great news for the industry, and hopefully new technology and equipment uh, will allow uh, every component manufacturer to uh, continue to grow, as well as allowing trusses to improve um, their market penetration. I mean, it, uh, you know, my father thought of this in 1957 when he first heard about, first introduced to Carol, Shel or Carol Shelby, Carol Sanford. And um, some of those early guys were really, really smart. And uh, I'm happy to see, you know, 60 years later, the industry is still going strong. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking your time today to join us on this podcast. It was wonderful spending some time with you. I appreciate it uh, greatly, Sean. I, I just hope a few of the listeners might learn a bit about uh, the industry's past and uh, realize the importance, the great importance of being involved with your chapter and even the SBCA board, uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, trust me when I say your investment in travel expense and time will be greatly rewarded. Thanks, Scott. Well, I'd also like to thank our listeners for spending this time with us, hopefully getting some insight um, into how to capitalize on today's market opportunities. And uh, one of those things being getting involved in SPCA. Thank you for listening to SPCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com. 